guys. Hey, you guys, welcome. Thanks for being here. You guys can grab a seat. Hey, if you're online, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I hope no matter where we're tuning in from, whether it's here, your couch, your bed, your workplace, wherever it is, uh, God still wants to move in your life. And he does want to say something to you tonight. So can I say thank you guys for choosing to spend Sunday night here. This is like a great way to set up your week. And I just want to thank Pastor Chris and Pastor Sue for the opportunity to share with you guys tonight. Uh, God's been challenging me lately, which is, I guess, good. No, it's definitely good. Uh, But part of what he's been challenging me about, I do want to share with us tonight. Uh, We're going to go into Luke chapter 4, if you've got scripture with you. But before we go there, have I got any sports fans here? Maybe you love, uh, we've got some NRL fans, some AFL fans, probably not many. Uh, But maybe some soccer fans, I know there's a couple here that still play. Now, I know Geordie Howard, Josh Hall, Brad, you guys know what I'm going to be talking about. When you play heaps of team sports, and I used to play heaps of representative soccer, when I was younger and more mobile and not old with a broken back. Uh, but I used to get really, let's call it passionate when I played. Passionate to the point of enthusiastically aggressive. I think it was something I came up with there. But I used to get really quite uh, loud when I was playing. And, and I'm sure when we've watched games like Origin, we see Queensland's winning by like three points and there's two minutes to go, and New South Wales just chucked the most forward pass mankind's ever seen, and the, the, the winger catches it, scores a try, and the ref says, that was a great pass. And, we all, and they win the game, and Queensland loses, and we're all just like, ref, are you blind? Like, that was like a gridiron, just hike up the field. Like, what are you doing? You should have just gone to spec savers. Man, do you know how many yellow cards I've got for saying that to a referee? Way too many. But honestly, refs need to go to spec savers. Am I right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we use this is like this we should have gone to spec savers, or you should have gone to spec savers, is a common Aussie term. Think about it. You're with your mate, he's driving, or she's driving. They just got to reverse out of the car park. That's all you learn. They hit the only light pole <laughs> in the car park. Boom, straight in the back of it. Like, no, my dad did do that. Uh, shout out to your dad if you're listening. That was awesome. I guess it was a power pole. It's even better. Uh, but like, you just turned to me like, you should have gone to spec savers. Or when you, you know, your keys are on the table and you're running around the house and you're late for work and you're like, where are my keys? And mum just goes, they're, just, they're literally just right on the table. You should have gone to spec savers. We even see this like with internal stuff. Like when we, we make a decision that has an outcome that was really obvious but we do it anyway. And then we're like, why didn't we see that coming? Should have gone to spec savers. Man, should have gone to spec savers is a common term that we throw around whenever we don't see things coming that we probably should have. But has anyone, anyone ever had one of those should have gone to spec savers moments that was more like a bit of a hit in the guts? When you're like, ooh, that one gets me in the feels. Ah, I should have seen that coming. Maybe you're like me and you've experienced a couple of these things in life. Or maybe you're, you're in your workplace and you want to get a promotion. So you, you put in all those extra hours. You hit your targets. You exceed your targets and you're all lined up for the promotion. Your boss gives it to someone who is less deserving, who didn't earn it and definitely shouldn't be in the position that was yours, rightfully yours. And so you get really frustrated and angry. Maybe uh, you're, you're a school or a uni student and you've studied hard for that final exam. And your friend who you know did a 30-minute cram session the night before uh, the results come in, you get a B, and they get an A. And you start resenting them. You're like, you don't deserve that result. Like, what even? How did, you, how did this even happen? I put in all this work. You need 30 minutes of cramming? 
Gabe knows what I'm talking about, I'm sure. What about those times uh, where, if we think about it, in life? We, we just go out, we want to see, we, we maybe come to church or we're going to hang out with our friends and there's someone new there, someone who's a bit different to yourself and you, you know, oh, we probably should say, ah, oh, they're different from, I'm going to talk to my friend. You know, these moments in life that we feel we're in the right. Now, sometimes when I find myself in these places, I like to complain about it to my wife, the Holy Spirit, uh, to justify myself. And I've, honestly, the, the Holy Spirit, who goes by the name of Izzy, uh, generally tends to challenge me on these things. And she goes, Matt, why do you feel like you deserve that? What makes you so special? Why are you, why are you feeling like this? And it's like, ugh, I should have gone to Specsavers. It's all these moments that hits me right in the feels. I've never experienced one of those moments. See, what I've, I've been thinking about this stuff lately, generally these feelings, these feelings that we deserve it, we earned it, we're better than that, they come from one place, and it's that pride thing. I think the pride thing gets us a little more than we'd like to admit. See, I really believe that pride, it's kind of something that runs deep in humanity. On some level, it's not, sometimes for some people it's a huge issue, for others it's not so much of an issue, but I do believe it's an issue humanity's faced for a very long time uh, and continues to face to this day. And I'm not talking about the kind of pride that says, I put my all in. I gave it my best shot. It was a great result. I'm really proud of that. I feel good. I'm not talking about being proud of yourself. I'm talking about the kind of pride that does that and then says, I am the king. I am the greatest. Look at here what I've achieved. Isn't it good? Aren't I good? And you start elevating yourself. It's the kind of pride that gets the A, that gets the promotion and goes, "Mm, I'm the expert. I am now the authority on this subject. You will come to me and I will tell you how it's going to go. It's the kind of pride that says, I've got 5,000 followers on Instagram and you've got 50. Therefore, I'm more popular than you. Therefore, my Instagram theme is more aesthetic. I've got more viral videos than you and therefore I am better than you. We might not verbally say that, but that's something you definitely, people out there are thinking. I'm talking about that kind of pride. The pride that puts you on a pedestal above others. And it's a dangerous thing because sometimes we don't even know it's there until we should have gone to Specsavers. And it's not an uncommon thing and it's not something that we're just dealing with today. Even if you look at the Old Testament in Scripture, they paint plenty of pictures about it. Look at the way the Egyptians treated the Israelites in Exodus. They treated them as less than uh, people. They treated them as slaves. They beat them. They took away their food, all sorts. The Romans did the same thing to the Israelites when they were running the show in Jesus' time. They were like, these Israelites, they're just a nuisance. They're uprising left, right, and center. We'll stamp them down here. That's all good. They're peasants. They're going to pay us all their money. They treated them terribly because the Romans felt they were better. But on the other hand, the Israelites did the same thing to people groups like the Samaritans uh, and people who, like the minority groups in the land that God had given them. They did the same thing. Thing. They've been dealing with this for thousands of years. There's hundreds and thousands of examples we could give from the last 2,000 years about how people have elevated themselves above others. And the drama with pride is that it destroys our lives. It builds bridges, or actually burns the bridges. It puts wedges into things. It divides. It causes loneliness. And let's be real, none of us want to live like that, right? I mean, I don't. I don't want to live on my own, have no relationships with anyone, but pride will do that if we're not careful. So we've got to go to Specsavers on ourselves. We've got to go down there and get ourselves a good deal on checking myself out, 
in a good way to see what I need to change, glasses. So Jesus talks about this a lot, and not just pride, but on lots of common issues humanity faces. But we're going to look at a pride one today. This is from Luke chapter 4, the start of his ministry. Uh, The previous chapter, to give some context, he has just been baptized in water by John. He's uh, been filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes out into the wilderness. Uh, He's tempted there three times. He overcomes them all. And then he winds up in Galilee, uh, visits a few towns, and ends up in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is his hometown. He's on the home field advantage, you could say. He grew up there. The people know him. And he's there, and he comes to the Sabbath, and as is his custom, and the custom of many Jewish people, they go to the synagogue. Basically, they come to church. And Jesus is invited up to share from the scripture. Now, to be invited up, you couldn't just be any old Joe Blow who wandered in off the street. You generally had to be well-respected. You generally had to be well-learned. You generally had to be a rabbi. And Jesus was all of these things. He was a local boy. The people knew him. And he gets up and he shares from Isaiah. And we're not going to look at that. It's not like it is important, absolutely, because he shares a uh, scripture that's a prophecy of himself and tells the people that it's been filled in their hearing. And they're amazed. They're like, wow, is this Joseph's son? This is our boy from Nazareth. This is Jesus from Nazareth. He's our guy spitting great words from God. Man, they're amazed by the grace at which he spoke. And then he says this in verse 24. Get that on the screen. He challenges them. He says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Isn't this just a contradiction from the the people love him? And he's like, no, you guys still don't accept me. It's like, oh, where are we going with this Jesus? And he says to them, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, which is not Israel. That's important. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, who was not from Israel. That's also important. Now, the people loved him, and he said, you don't accept me? What do you think the people are going to do next? Are they going to react well? They are not going to react well. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they decided they would drive him, they drove him out of the temple, up a hill, we're going to push him off the cliff because we want to kill him. And then Jesus just walks through the, cloud, uh, the crowd free. What a zero to 100 reaction we get. This is in the space of six verses. They're like, wow, this guy's amazing. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. We're mad. We're going to kill him. Now, context. Driving someone up a hill to throw them off was the first step in stoning someone because you threw them off the cliff, they broke their legs, they couldn't get away, and then you threw rocks at them. They really wanted to kill Jesus. <laughs> and it's so easy to read this story and land on the fact that he just walked through the crowd and got away scot-free and they didn't even realise. Like, it's, it's an amazing story. It's like, wow, Jesus is onto something here. But that's not the point I think this story is trying to tell. When I read this, I really believe that there's actually something bigger at play. We need to ask one question. Why do these people get so angry? I mean, there's some contradictions in the verse, but why so angry that they wanted to just kill him immediately from amazement to let's murder him? Why do they get there? And it comes down to the story Jesus shared from, the stories that he was telling. Now, we need to understand, firstly, that when Moses led the people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, God said to them, you are my people. I'll look after you. 
That's 1,600 years before Jesus came along. That's 1,600 years worth of generations that said, we are God's people. God looks after us. 1,600 years worth of people deeply believing that, passing that on to their children, who passed it on to their children, and so on and so on. You can imagine how deeply ingrained this train of thought, this belief system is in every single Israelite's mind. That despite their hardships, that despite the fact that they regularly went off the rails, uh, but would somehow make their way back, uh, despite what was happening in their oppression from the Romans, God was only on their side. So it's pretty deeply uh, held belief. They're pretty passionate about it. And Jesus, like many things, decides he's going to confront them on him. And he uses this, he challenges this concept with a story that the people definitely knew about. It's a reading from the prophet. Naaman, I'm going to look at Naaman. It's from 2 Kings chapter 5. The people would have known about this. They knew who Elijah and Elisha were. The prophets, they were great prophets of their day. And Jesus starts talking about Naaman. So firstly, let's, why Naaman? What's his importance? If you go back to 2 Kings, I'm not going to go to the scripture, but um, basically he's a Syrian. He's not an Israelite. Is God on his side? Not according to the Israelites. He's not. So he's, he's a Syrian. He's an outsider. He's someone that the Israelites didn't like. Not only that, he's also the commander of the Aram, the neighboring country of Israel. He's the commander of their armies. He's the second most powerful person in that country. Those two countries, Israel and Aram, were at war many years. They did not get along well. Now, so you can imagine this is already a touchy subject. We don't like Naaman already because he's not an Israelite. Naaman has leprosy, the story goes. And Naaman's wife's servant was an Israelite slave who knew about Elisha the prophet. And she says to Naaman's wife, hey, man, I just wish Naaman would go and see Elisha. Maybe he can help his leprosy. Naaman's wife says, Naaman, nudge, nudge. Let's get that sorted, mate. It's a bad skin condition you got there. We can't cure it. Maybe Elisha can. Naaman goes, hmm, good idea, wifey. Let's go see the king and get some permission. So the king uh, receives Naaman and goes, mate, yeah, we need you well so you can crush Israel. I'll write a letter and I'll send it to the king of Israel, uh, letting him know you're coming. And the letter basically said, hey, king, I hope you're well, but not really, because Naaman's coming and you're going to get the prophet to heal him. Full stop, end of story. So the king of Israel receives this from the enemy. Does he feel good? No, he does not. He freaks out. He's like, who am I to heal this dude? Like, what happens if I don't? He's going to come in here and crush the country. Elisha gets wind of this and goes, that's all right, king, I understand. Just send him to me. So Naaman makes his way into Israel, goes and sees Elisha. And Elisha says to Naaman, go and bathe in the Jordan River, the river in Israel, seven times and you'll be good. Weird, weird advice, right? A little bit weird. Naaman thinks it's weird too. He gets really mad and he just leaves. And he goes, why wouldn't Elisha just wave his hand over me, call upon the name of God and, uh, and I'd be healed? And not only that, the rivers in Syria are so much cleaner than Israel. They're so much better than Israel's rivers. I mean, see Naaman's level of pride here. He's like, I don't want to bathe in a random river, in my, not even in my country, that's probably dirty and full of muck, at least in my eyes. His pride is super high, so he gets angry. He's probably on the way back to tell his boss, let's get them Israelites. They were useless. Uh, but on the way, his servants, who were slaves, probably from Israel, probably not wanting to see their home country get crushed, convince him, just give it a go. Like, what's the worst that could happen? You've already got leprosy. Like, what's the worst that could happen? So Naaman 
somehow is convinced. He lays down his pride of his nation, that his nation's better than Israel, that the rivers were better. He lays down the pride, the fact that his slaves managed to convince him to do something some random dude told him to do. And he goes and he does it. And the story goes, he is healed, free of leprosy. His skin is better than ever before, like that of a young boy, it says. And so Naaman goes back to Elisha and goes, mate, you were right, and your God is the one true God. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to be... I'm going to obey God. I'm going to listen to him. And hey, just, just he goes as far as to say, tell God to forgive me when I have to go to the king's, my king's temple and worship his God. I'm not really worshiping that God. I'm worshiping you. It's all good. Just tell him that. So this story that Jesus brings up about Naaman the Syrian has so many levels to it that we can understand why the Israelites were not happy about that kind of a story being told. Um, but it's an incredible story, hey, of redemption, of healing, of God's provision, of God's love for all. And so Jesus uses this story. It's a touchy subject, and he uses it to challenge the deeply ingrained notion that the Israelites were God's chosen people. In fact, you could reread that whole passage as Jesus saying something like this. Israelites, you have pridefully elevated yourself above the other nations. So much so, you've missed the point. You've actually missed what God's been wanting to do. You've missed that God is and always has been for everyone and for every nation. No matter who they are, where they're from, what their status is, what their life's been like, God loves them. Look, God's already been trying to show you this through the ages. Think about the widow. Think about Naaman. Like your pride has made you blind to what God really wants to do in your life. And the people got really mad. And I feel that's because they knew he was right. So their first reaction was to kill him. We're not going to go there. But they got so angry at this. And it's so easy to read this story and think, man, and take all this in and go, the Israelites are just fools. Could they not see it? And that's really easy for us to say 2,000 years later, knowing the context and knowing the end of the story, knowing that Jesus really is for every single person, knowing that that's why he came to reveal that to us. We're 2,000 years later. We can look back and think that, but the reality is this, that we're not different to the Israelites. I think we've all walked, walked a mile or so in, in Israelites' shoes on some level. Now, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying we're all prideful, uh, arrogant fools. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that I believe pride is an issue for every single person who's ever walked this planet. And I do believe that if we let it get a tiny foothold, it will grow into a bigger issue in our life if we don't go to Specsavers and check it. So... When we think about this, let me paint a picture with the way pride destroys our life. That person that we get angry or frustrated with when they get the promotion. If we let our pride get in the way of their success, we lose an opportunity to build a relationship with someone new. And we even lose an opportunity to celebrate with someone in their joy. And that allows the potential for offence to step in. If you've ever been offended, you know it will eat away at your heart like no tomorrow. When, When we ask for advice from trusted friends and they give us good advice but we don't like it and we decide, we go away and we decide we know better. What that actually does is burns the bridge between us. Over time, that will draw the two of you apart because you'll want to talk to them less and less. You won't want the advice and suddenly you don't have good advice in your life. When we judge the decisions our friends make and we say things like, I would never do that. Or I know better than that. Who are we to judge? Because we've all made decisions that we should have gone to Specsavers about. Like we are, that is creating loneliness. We'll lose our relationship with people. It's like becoming a Pharisee, driving a wedge between the two of you. When we 
well, as I said, we walk into church, maybe. You see someone sitting on their own. You're not sure who they are, but you know, they feel like it's, they're new here. And you get that inkling, I'm going to go, I'm different from me, I'm going to go talk to my friends. When we make those kind of choices, we actually close ourselves off from potential, uh, from our world opening, from the opportunity to share our life with someone else, the opportunity to help someone feel at home and feel welcome. If we do that in the workplace, it's the same thing. We lose that opportunity to create a new relationship. And over time, we'll become lonely, bitter people because of that. And it's so easy, oh, even, I shouldn't leave this one out, when we use our own lives as a measure of success and we start comparing others to our measuring tape. Oh, they're not where I'm at. They'll get there, maybe. Probably not. When we start thinking people like that, when we use our lives as the measure of success, that's pride and that is eating us away. Uh, It's so easy when we let any of these things, or even more examples we could go on for days about this stuff, but when we let that kind of pride into our hearts, we actually become blind. We become blind to the people around us. We become blind to the opportunities God wants to do uh, in our lives. We become blind to God in general. We actually can't see what he's doing. And we've got to go to Specsavers regularly. It's like an optometrist, right? That you go there and they check your eyes and they're like, yep, everything's good or whatever the case may be. But come back in 12 months because we want to make sure everything's going the way it should be. We want to, if there needs to be an adjustment, we want to get on that early. We don't want to be 10 years down the track and you crashing your car because you can't see. Like, we don't want that. Come back in 12 months. Let's check it regularly. Pride's like that. If we don't check our hearts regularly, it's going to be a big issue later down the road. But when we do check ourselves, when we do lay down our pride, we start to begin to see the world as Jesus did. We start seeing what God wants to do. We can celebrate with friends and family when they have a win. We can celebrate with those colleagues who get the promotion because who knows, man, maybe there's something better for us out there. Um, We strengthen the relationships in our world when we stop filtering ourselves or everything that we see through the lens of, but I know better than that. We open our lives up to those new opportunities, the new pathways that God has for each and every one of us, and we begin to see people the way Jesus does. We begin to view the way the world, the way God always has, and we start being able to see the people. We start being able to see the opportunities. We have to set ourselves up for the future God has for us. If only we check ourselves regularly. We've got to go to Specsavers, guys. God begins to do powerful things through us. I just want to share briefly uh, I was talking with one of our missions partners, speaking of missions partners, our Sri Lankan mission partner, Pastor Rasika. I was just talking to him on the phone a couple of weeks ago. I said to him, I was like, mate, how's things going? He's like, oh, I've got to tell you a story. Your discipleship conferences that uh, we've been running, that you guys have been helping us out with, the start of last year, there was one, and there was a young Sri Lankan girl, probably not older than a lot of us here, went to that. Uh, it, it changed the way she viewed the world. It, it helped her see that Jesus was actually for everyone and that she could make a difference in her world. And so she went back to her town. She's from a small country, a poorer area in Sri Lanka, and she started a life group. Got a few friends together and said, let's do life together. Let's become disciples of Jesus. And over time, the group grew, and they felt that they needed to go to the neighboring town and do the same there. The drama is that neighboring town, and if I say this really politely, they were not open to Christianity whatsoever. Uh, But they go there anyway, and they plan a life group. And soon the group's growing. They're meeting new girls. Girls, again, their lives are changing. They're beginning to meet Jesus. They're beginning to find new hope for their future. And then the leaders of the town get wind of it. And they go to this girl and say, you're going to stop what you're doing, in a polite way, of course. 
but she pushes on through the adversary and the group continues to grow. And over time, the town begins to change. The attitude begins to change. It's more positive. There's less crime. It's actually changing the whole town. And the leaders have to go to her and they say to her, we were wrong. What you're doing is good. You need to keep going. And that group turned into a church in a town that was once not even open to the possibilities of God. Because this girl did not let the pride of the knowledge she obtained at a conference. She didn't let the pride of her relationship with Jesus interfere with the way she talked with other people. She didn't let her pride stop her from fulfilling what God had for her. Yes, she overcame fear and she was confident in who God was, but she didn't let the pride stop her first step. That's the kind of thing that God wants to do in all our lives. And I'm not saying plant a church in every town. That might be the case. But I'm saying God wants to use you to do the next step. He wants you to see the world in a new way. He wants to open doors uh, of opportunity in your life. He wants, you to, he wants to lead you into the future that he's got for you. But if we let pride in and we blind ourselves, we won't see it. So as Pastor Shane Willard says, good preaching is not to be agreed or disagreed with. It is to be wrestled with. I wrestled with this as I was uh, sharing or I was putting together what God's put on my heart. These are some of the questions I asked myself, and I believe these are questions that can help us just check if there's pride going on. Firstly, do we believe that God loves us no matter what? So this is a really convenient truth to believe, that God loves me no matter what, especially when I make a mistake. It's all good, right? But I want to talk about us. What about the collective sense? That leads us to, do I also believe that if God loves me no matter what, does he really love everyone else? We've got to answer yes to that. If we can't answer yes to that wholeheartedly, we're already letting pride dim our eyesight. If we can get on the right page with those two questions, we can ask ourselves this next one. Have I elevated myself above those around me. And that's one you might have to spend some time on thinking about. It's one just to keep in the back of your mind for when a situation comes up. Um, Has my elevated status caused me to overlook those around me? And if yes, what do you need to change? Maybe that's the way you talk about people. Maybe that's the way you think or your attitude towards life. Maybe it's the way you interact with people. Pride can affect so many areas of our life if we're not careful because we just don't see what we're doing. And lastly, am I truly experiencing all that God has for me? And do I want to? I think if you find yourself sitting there going, no, I'm not experiencing it all. Ask yourself, why not? What do you need to do about it? Maybe that's just take a step of faith. Maybe that's check yourself. Maybe that's go to Specsavers. I don't know. But ask yourself that question. Do I see the world the way Jesus does? When we stand, we're going to pray tonight. Jesus... Thanks so much for this opportunity to gather here, to gather online. Thank you that you're working in each of us tonight. Thank you that you're giving us clear vision, that we're beginning to see areas in our life that might need improving, but you're keeping us aware for those moments that we don't realize, but you're in us in those, in those moments, helping us grow and become more open and accepting, and, and we can see what you've got for each and every one of us clearly. We thank you uh, for the opportunity that present themselves when we're aware of what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, maybe here tonight and uh, you'd say, Matt, look, I'm not walking the journey with Jesus. That's cool. Jesus loves you no matter where you're at. But I would encourage you, hey, if, if something in your heart said tonight, I need to find out a bit more. I need to figure out what's next. Or I've got some questions. Hey, why don't you act on that? Um, Pastor Levi is going to come and share on what your next steps are with that. But if that's you, I would encourage you, don't let your pride stop you asking the question. Uh, 
you never know what could happen. Cool. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the rest of your night. Hey, why don't we thank Pastor Matt?